Today's episode is a Dharma talk and guided meditation. This is one of the first offerings from the new programming that Terry and I are offering in our summer Sangha, that is our online virtual Sangha, or community of practitioners. The idea in the Sangha is that each week I will begin on Monday nights giving a talk and meditation on a particular theme. And then over the course of that week, both Terry and I will weave that theme into our classes. Terry will bring the theme into our yin yoga and qigong classes on Tuesday. I will thread the theme into my yin yoga class on Wednesday nights, and Terry will continue on with the theme in her yang yoga class on Thursdays. So these talks will get recorded live, and members of the Sangha will be able to attend the live talk um, and have access to all the talks and classes that we offer in the archived library on my site. I'll say more about that in a second. But uh, to podcast listeners, if you're not able to catch the live talk, these talks will be published roughly a week or so after the live recording. So uh, just stay tuned. I will be giving about four of these talks a month um, in addition to the longer form interview that I'll be having with one of my guests. So this is a way to sort of Build, flesh out a little bit of a different dimension in the podcast where I'll be able to share some teachings and offer some real practices that might help your meditation and yoga practice. Um, now, participation in the Sangha is done on a sort of a, a sliding fee basis where we want to make the access to Sangha participation available to anyone that has interest. And if you're not available to support us with uh, a financial sustaining membership, we also offer a beneficiary membership whereby we basically say if you join as a beneficiary, we, you are allowing us to practice generosity with you by offering the teachings for free. So this is sort of a, we're trying to design a, a virtuous uh, support circle where um, those that can support us and also support the opportunity and access for those that can't offer support. And so far it's going great. And it's giving us an opportunity to really develop uh, themes and uh, practices that we teach in our trainings, where it's giving us an ability to, to take those themes and bring them into an, more of an ongoing uh, developmental programming so that um, we can support continuity in practice, meaning uh, just helping people practice on a more regular and continu continuous manner. Um, but within that continuity, the idea is that by addressing specific themes and weaving those themes into one's practice, the overall development of the path simply deepens by virtue of that continuity and exposure to these themes. So this is, this is very inspiring to us, and the feedback has been great so far. So if you would like to join, if you're interested in this programming, consider um, joining as a member, and you can learn more about that at our site, uh, joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G. H-A. And I should note that it did come to my attention that I ironically misspelled the word in the last episode announcing the Sangha. So again, it's www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha. S-A-N-G-H-A. Okay, here's today's talk on friendship as the first step on the path. I hope you enjoy it, and I look forward to sharing more talks like this with you soon. Thank you. 
Welcome to the first virtual Sangha talk or the first Dharma talk of this virtual Sangha that Terry and I are starting. Um, it's great to see you all. Um, many of you are very familiar faces to both of us and some of you we haven't seen in a while. So that's fantastic to, to connect again, um, even at a distance. As you may know, um, a sangha is kind of means different things in different contexts and different spiritual contexts. And the way we're using the, the word is to refer to a community of people that um, value um, qualities of the mind and heart that um, you could say are conducive to greater um, coherence or cohesion in society and, and, they, and they support the, the, the mitigation or the, the, the the reduction of suffering in the world, both for ourselves individually and for others. So the Dharma, which is what this kind of talk is about, the Dharma uh, can be thought of um, in a few different ways. In, in Indian spirituality, the Dharma can refer to kind of your, your calling in life, what you feel like you're meant to do or what your purpose on, on this earth is. Um, in Buddhism, the Dharma tends to refer to the way things are and how to bring about our awareness um, to see the way things are so that we can be at peace with the way things are. And if I were to put it in my own words, I'd say to me, the Dharma is kind of a series of tools and reflections about how to use those tools that can support a flourishing life. So I'm not going to, I will be drawing from Buddhism from time to time, but I'm trying to offer the teaching and, and the various practices in this in this in this community um, in a way to support a secular spirituality so you don't need to, to believe anything you don't need to uh, buy into anything everything that i'll be offering and sharing is is offered in the spirit of a reflection and reflections um, may or may not resonate with you and and my general suggestion and this was advice that i received is if you hear something that resonates with you that, that you try out and you feel that it is supportive and beneficial to you then please take that reflection and make it your own. You can incorporate it. If you hear something that, or you try something that feels problematic or doesn't resonate with you, uh, just leave that aside next to your mat when you get up and, and uh, the cleaning staff will take it away. But you don't have to take on anything that, that doesn't um, sit well with you. Sometimes the Dharma itself, this, 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 collection of tools and reflections for how to live a flourishing life. Sometimes this is referred to as a path. And um, when I first began Dharma practice, uh, it was sort of established or, or presented in a way whereby uh, the path was something that had been kind of created and maintained by countless generations prior to me. And all I would need to do was in a dedicated, sincere way, walk in the footsteps of those that came before me, walk in the footsteps of the ancestors, spiritual ancestors. Um, so whether you're a Buddhist or a, more of a Yoga Sutra person or maybe a Vedanta person, um, there's various teachers and various traditions and various lineages and various tools that help support walking a path. And in that orientation, if you think about a path that way, it can seem a little formulaic like there's a there's a tried and true methodology that somebody somewhere else created and that to realize what they realized we have to in a sense follow their footsteps and i think there's great benefit to that um, but in terms of 
imagining a path that we're on and in terms of imagining our individual paths, I want to kind of borrow an interpretation of what a spiritual path might mean or be from uh, another contemporary teacher. Um, and this, this teacher's name is Stephen Batchelor. Some of you are probably familiar with him. Um, he is an English uh, Buddhist teacher, uh, teaches in Europe a lot and comes to the United States. But in, in a talk I heard from him, he described a path literally. He said, what, what, if you think about a path, literally what it is, is a clearing in, a, in, a, in an overgrown space, you know, in, a, in a clearing in wilderness, if you will. And this, it's a clearing that permits passage and makes that passage easier. If you try to pass through wilderness and overgrown jungle or over, overgrown forest, you know, you're, you're bushwhacking your way through and it can be very tedious and laborious. But if someone has come along and tended a path, you're able to walk through relatively at ease. Um, so again, this can seem like somebody else created the path we just need to follow, but what I'll be trying to present um, over the course of several teachings in here is that a path is something that can open up within us when we have created a clearing free of reactivity. And this is a, kind of one interpretation I have of some of the Buddhist teachings that the path is one about learning how to recognize and overcome conditioned forms of reactivity that make our life challenging. So when we react unnecessarily to something, we overreact, when we perceive things in a way and then and, or misperceive things and then um, engage with that misperceiving in a way that causes harm to ourselves, to others, this is the kind of unnecessary, unforced errors in life that make life more difficult. Um, so, my sense of a, this path is that we train ourselves to look more clearly and see how we are relating to what's going on. And there's, so these are these two twin aspects of spiritual practice in, in the way I, I see it. There's aspects of the path or practice that support developing good skills of relationship to what's occurring. And then there are skills that are, are trainings that help us perceive more clearly what's going on. And sometimes those, those teachings and those two trainings are merged where we're trying to develop a simultaneous clear perception of what's going on, simultaneous to developing you know, say a non-judgmental, warm-hearted, kind relationship to what's going on. I've practiced that way for a while and I'm currently of the opinion, and it is my opinion, that trying to do those together can be can be quite tricky um, and it can actually lead to kind of a unnecessary tension and unnecessary judgment of how your practice is going so in this initial uh, meditation tonight and and going forward for a while the aspect of the path that i'm going to start with is the relational piece how are we relating to what's going on and how can we develop gentler more uh, skillful ways of relating to the content of our experience so that we start to have a gentler, friendlier uh, relationship to it, which will then support the ability to see more clearly what's going on. So we're not going to be thrashing through much as much because we will be cultivating um, good qualities of relationship vis-a-vis -vis whatever might be going on with us. And that brings me to talk about how meditation functions or serves the path. Um, a lot of times people see meditation as a, a kind of a, a spiritual technique that you do to bring about a particular outcome. 
And in that orientation or that way of framing meditation practice, where you sit down, you do something to get something. You might focus on the breath to get quiet. You might focus on your body to get away from your thoughts. You might uh, repeat a phrase to fill your heart with a quality of love. So you, you might be doing something to produce a desired outcome. And generally when people practice that way, and I'm speaking from experience, when I practiced that way where it was very goal-oriented, um, I found that there was almost a near constant tension in my being around the practice where I felt hopelessly and endlessly inadequate. That no matter how hard I practice, it was never enough. There was always evidence within my experience that I wasn't present enough, that I wasn't kind enough, that I wasn't gentle enough, that I wasn't uh, sharp enough, that I wasn't present, uh, awake enough, whatever it is. So at some point, I forget who it was from, but I, I, I gleaned this, a, a different way of framing the practice or a different way of approaching practice. And this, this different approach emphasizes the process of practice, not so much the outcome. So rather than practicing, hoping that by the end of 30 minutes, you'll get to a predetermined destination, the idea of this approach, which is more process-oriented, is to try to bring the destination into every moment of the process of practice so that you're intentionally cultivating the very thing you seek in relationship to whatever might be going on while you're practicing. And when I started doing that, um, a couple things started to click for me. One, there was just far less tension. I was far less judgmental, far less angry at myself or, or frustrated. And when that anger, frustration, tension started to dissolve, then the, the, the fruits of practice felt that they were much easier or much, much closer uh, to reach or much easier to uh, experience. So we will, over time, I promise, we will be moving into perceptual skills, looking very closely at the nature of experience and, and particularly looking very closely into the nature of that which experience is, experiences experience. But at the beginning, and I found this recently on, on the retreats Terry and I've been teaching, that starting with this relational mode um, really sets the stage for all the other elements or all the other levels of practice to kind of unfold in a more straightforward and easy manner. And meditation, uh, if I haven't said it yet, meditation is, in my view, simply a laboratory in which you can start to develop these skills of relationship and perception. Um, and just like an athlete, like a, I was thinking of a baseball player, they, a batter will go to a batting cage to practice hitting balls. You know, they go and practice that way. A meditator practices cultivating these skills of living in meditation, skills of relationship and skills of perception or perceptual skills. Um, now, traditionally, the way that relational skills in meditation, at least in Buddhist meditation, are taught is through the practice and cultivation of what's called metta. Metta is the Pali word. This is the language that the Buddhist teachings were preserved in. Um, metta translates often as kindness or loving kindness or loving friendliness. And as I was thinking about this talk today, I, I, I kept having this feeling in me every time I, I contemplated those words. And that feeling was the, the, this, almost a feeling of my skin crawling in discomfort. And it's been a feeling, I, if I'm honest, I've had all along the path that whenever 
a teacher or I read in a book, someone's talking about loving kindness. It's like, it just feels so sickeningly sweet and fake and contrived and artificial and just something that I really have no interest in. And, and I, felt, I always felt very um, alienated from formal heart practices. They felt very contrived where you traditionally what you do in them is you'd repeat certain phrases with the intention of trying to cultivate that the feeling and quality of these the phrases in your heart so you're probably familiar with some of these but one might be may i be peaceful may i be kind may i be happy may i live in ease and then you after directing those phrases to yourself for a while you, you then start to send or radiate the, the the intention of those phrases to different categories of being people that you know your friends family um, the, the, the neutral people in your life, the so-called enemies of your life, and then ultimately to all beings. And for many, many years, I was an abject meta-failure. Um, and it was so bad that when I would do retreats, when I'd sit on a retreat, um, there was usually one meditation session after lunch around two o'clock where there would be a guided meta-meditation. And I, I would skip that session. <laughs> I would go back to my room and just sit down on my pillow and watch my breath on my bed until the metta, the terror of metta had passed. Um, but the reason I was struggling with it was that it, 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 it felt out of reach to me. You know, it felt so lofty, the idea of having this kind of uh, universal love for self and others. It felt so lofty. It felt like it was an ideal that I was miles from and that I would probably never get close enough to. Now, I'm gonna offer an, an, a form of metta that is something that I have fashioned for myself that, that has worked much better. Um, and I wanna kind of tie it into a teaching that I shared in the newsletter today or, um, that is, comes from the early canon um, known as the Upada Sutta. It's the sutta where uh, the Buddha's cousin, Ananda, came to him and said, was kind of questioning about the role of friendship on the path. And the way Ananda framed it, he said, sir, is good friendship, is wise friendship half of the holy life? He's basically essentially asking, is that right? How much of, of, the, of the holy life is composed or dependent on wise, good friendship? And the Buddha was very quick to rebuke him, as I said. He, he, he said, no, 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 Ananda. Wise friendship is not half the holy life. Wise, good friendship is the entirety of the holy life. You know, and, and when you're hanging out with your friends and you want to get along with your friends, that's and particularly your spiritual friends, that's a good thing to quote. Like, wow, we're hanging out, you know, my, my bros and my sisters, we're all like Dharma friends here. This is like the, whole, the entirety of the holy life. We just have to sit around and drink herbal tea and we are fulfilling the holy life particularly if we talk about Buddhism or the Dharma. And, you know, you know, I, I appreciate that kind of feel-good sentiment, but there's too many other teachings that I'm familiar with that, that run count, counter to that te statement. Teachings that talk about relying on yourself, uh, being a lamp unto yourself, knowing for yourself, not dependent on what someone else says. And so the position of friendship on the path is, you know, I think it's valuable, but I, I don't think it can be taken literally like that, even though that tends to be the, 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 can, the canonical interpretation that, that good friendship is, is, is something that you should cultivate. 
And I, I don't disparage that. I think it, it, it has its place. But if, if you allow me a kind of more figurative interpretation, a figurative interpretation of what the Buddha is implying when he says good friendship is the entirety of the holy life, the way I hear that is that he's saying cultivating qualities of the heart towards yourself, towards others, and towards all experience as a good friend is the entirety of the holy life. So it's not necessarily cultivating, I mean, there is the level of cultivating good friendships with people, but it's a friendly or a friendship towards all of life that I think he's speaking to, where, the, where we're putting down the deeply conditioned tendencies to have a conflictual or a contentious relationship with the world. And I'll probably pick up on this theme later. This does not mean that we become passive door, doormats either. I won't be able to get into that theme tonight, but cultivating a friendship with all of experience does not imply that we're just uh, passively uh, passive doormats waiting to be trampled over. But if we take that idea of cultivating friendship, and this is, this is my, my version of metta, um, I have found that it allows me to move into the dimensions of the heart that are implied by metta practice or, or, or explicitly pointed to in metta practice um, that doesn't feel so contrived to me. It doesn't feel so artificial. It doesn't feel so um, kind of Pollyannish, if you will. So really friendship comes down to, and, and you, you probably have your own sense of what it means to be a good friend, and I don't want to impose my criteria for that on you. But usually with, with, with friendship, there's an attitude of goodwill, that you wish goodwill or you wish uh, happiness for your friend. And in practice, what I'm going to suggest tonight as we, we move into a meditation together, the first the first level of practice is developing, learning how to develop an attitude or a mindset of goodwill towards the experiences that blow through our body and mind while we're meditating. We don't, and, and that points to a, a very important thing from the very beginning, which is, at least in this style of meditation, which is based on early Buddhist teaching, in this style of meditation, we are not trying to control our experience. We're not trying to seek preferential experiences. We're not trying to get away from anything. We're simply cultivating skills of relationship and perception to see what is, what's actually happening. And one of the, I think one of the most important things I've ever heard from a teacher was what my teacher Rodney Smith said on the very first retreat I sat with him, where he said again and again, while, in the, while practicing, he said, the only experience to have is the one that you're having. The only experience to have in meditation is whatever is happening while it's occurring. We don't, and, and that runs against sort of the, our deep conditioning that we think, well, why would I do that? Why would I just sit with what is when what is is already tormenting me? And the answer is by looking deeply into what is tormenting you, so the key of liberation is contained within the, the very essence of it. If we can learn to see what's happening clearly, not to see it through the, our filters of liking and disliking that tend to condition everything we see, but 
to really look into deeply, we'll see the mechanism in us that is causing us the agitation. And in seeing that, we then put ourselves in a position where we can either let it go or see it let go by itself. And this is, this is like, I can say this to the cows come home, but this is hard fought wisdom. It's tested in the fire of your own experience moment by moment as we practice. Whenever something comes up that challenges us, that triggers us, that bores us, that irritates us, rather than trying to reflexively wish it away, sweep it under the carpet, pretend it's not happening, go back to our breath to be more spiritual on the breath, this approach takes the difficulties head on and encourages us to look more closely. And essentially, at, the, at its essence, there's always going to be the thing that's happening, and then there's the, the mental rearrangement or, or, or wishing that it was, ha- was not happening or something else was happening. And it's the mental layer that when we become more familiar with it, we have greater agency in terms of how we respond to that. We become less of an automaton, just knee-jerk reacting to whatever the brain spits out. And we have to be able to see those reactions and decide whether we're going to follow along with them or let them just trail off into the, the emptiness from which they emerged, if you will. <clears throat> so this idea of friendship, cultivating friendship, we often, always associate that term with a being, like a friend that we have. But the, the guy, the idea here is that I'm going to ask us to consider bringing a friend, an attitude of friendship to the experiences we have when we sit today, to our bodies, to the environment, to the various things that our brain creates and generates. Can we have a kind, friendly attitude towards these? And this is sort of a, you could call it an informal freestyle form of metta or loving kindness. Again, don't be triggered by that word like me. Um, but it's a freestyle thing. It's a, we're not trying to cultivate and send it to a person, per se, although that might come up spontaneously as we practice. We're simply trying to bring that quality of, of, of attention and care to the various things we notice when we're sitting. And I made a little list for myself to sort of prompt how I might think about orienting myself to my experience. And and my list of qualities of friendship that I value, and these don't need to be yours, but you consider this, you know, if I thought about sort of my closest friends, they tend to be honest. I value them for their honesty, their, their willingness to tell me things that may be hard to hear. I value their honesty and their truthfulness. Um, I also value their warmth. And that to me, I picked the warm, warm warmth specifically because it doesn't, for me, conjure any sense of that saccharinated, sugary, honey kind of, oh, I want to be warm, kind to you, that kind of thing. It's more, oh, a warm friend is someone who can be you know, authentically present and real and, and caring without dipping into um, kind of hallmark uh, sentiment. I also like humor. Humor is a quality that I value my friends. And I've, I was thinking, what, it, what would it mean to bring humor to the dynamics of meditation? This is something that tend, doesn't tend to get um, specified or, or spoken of too much. But um, the Dharma teachers that I've had, the meditation teachers that I've had over my, over my years, uh, all tend to be incredibly funny. Because you start to see how seriously 
you take things that really are pretty hilarious. When you start to see how unpredictable your mind is in terms of what it says and uh, opinionates on and, and, and the views it takes, you know, it, it's really quite haphazard. And when you start to observe this kind of mum, mumbling, jumbling uh, thing going on in your mind, it lightens you up because you realize, wow, what I took myself to be is this kind of cacophonous jumble of noise. And there's something else in you that's observing that that can't be defined by that jumble. There's a, there's a bit of a mistaken identity going on. That's quite a funny when you've lived your whole life believing these bleeding advertisements from your brain. And you realize, wow, there's another way. It's like, how, how come no one told me that at second grade? Would have been much easier. So a sense of humor is very helpful. I also value intelligence, the discernment, the ability to really define and, and look into things sharply and, and make distinctions and, 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 and draw clarifications and contrasts. And with my closest friends, there's also, there's inevitably qualities of forgiveness and patience. I say inevitably because I know for myself, I do things that are annoying. I can talk to anyone in my family about that. But with our foibles and annoyances that we uh, enact, our good friends forgive us. So if we can begin, give, bring some forgiveness and patience to ourselves in this process, it goes much easier. And in fact, when I practiced in Myanmar years back, that was the, the bit of advice an older monk gave to me at the beginning of the retreat. He said, just be patient. As long as you're patient, everything will unfold well, but you have to be patient. And connected to forgiveness and patience, a quality of compassion, you know, which is literally the desire to free or to liberate from suffering. So, you know, your friends don't cause harm. They don't, they don't intentionally harm you. And we can cultivate that attitude towards ourselves and experience um, as we meditate. So I'll pause now in a, in a moment, but as we practice, it's, it's going to be very simple. I'm not going to give you a ton of cues. But the basic, of it, basic orientation today is simply as we sit in a relaxed way we, and we endeavor to be with our experience as it unfolds, I would like you to identify for yourself some qualities of friendship that you align with. And you don't have to use my qualities, but qualities that you align with of what it means to be a good friend and invite those qualities to join you in this process of looking and being with yourself. What would it mean to be, to be a good friend to your body, good friend to your mind, a good friend to your environment as we sit? And from time to time, um, a question is, is a tool that you can use within the meditation to help reinforce or realign yourself around this approach. And a question that I would, I would suggest is, when from time to time while you're meditating tonight ask yourself what would it be like to hold this moment with and then fill in the quality that you align with so what would it be like to hold this moment with patience what would it be like to hold this moment with a sense of humor what would it be like to hold this moment with honesty 
And this may not sound like meditation to you. If you have a, a more stylistic or technique-driven uh, form of meditation that you've done. And that's intentional. And I, I want to say a quick word about that. The approaches that I'll be sharing are not so much led by technique. Like I'm not going to say focus on your breath. And when you notice your mind wandering, recognize it, label it, feel it in your body, let it go, and then come back to your breath or something like that. There's not going to be like a, a flow chart of technique that I'm going to ask you to, to, uh, to go along with. What I'm going to be doing prime over the course of these weeks um, and, and beyond is offer tools within a broader intention. And, I, and I'm trying to articulate that intention tonight. The intention is either to develop relational skills, perceptual skills, or both. And the intention is not to have special experiences or to change your experience, but just to be more in tune with the various experiences that you are having. And from there, insights about your the nature of yourself, the nature of experience, and what causes and frees suffering, frees, our, frees us from suffering, these insights just start to bubble up when the tools of relationship and perception are strong. So in a way, we're just, we're nourishing these seeds of good relationship and good perception within our meditation practice. And so rather than leading with a bunch of techniques, I'm trying to lead with this intention so that these techniques are, are not the, um, the the, the intention is not the servant of the technique. The, it's the other way around. That the technique is a servant to the intention itself. The practice is intention-led. So I think I'll pause there and uh, we'll begin the meditation. So please come to a comfortable seated position. And in general, when we meditate, I'll suggest that you sit with your spine reasonably straight. This does not mean to be rigid or tense or like aggressively straight. It's more you're sitting reasonably upright, so you, you, you're, you're, there's a quality of alertness within your mind. And yeah, if you want to, you feel free to turn your video off if you'd like. If you're sitting in a chair, I just suggest you, you sit forward in the chair some so that your, your, your spine is upright, not leaning against the, 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 the back of the chair. And then you can close your eyes and allow yourself to relax. So the practice begins with relaxation, physical and mental. Physical relaxation tends to be a bit easier to connect with in the beginning. It's sort of the antidote to tension. So taking inventory of your body, noticing where and how your body may be storing zones or regions of tension. You can send a, a, a gentle but firm 
invitation and permission to let the body begin to discharge tension or stress. Relaxing the face, shoulders, the abdomen and arms. And again, again, from time to time throughout the sitting, feel free to reconnect with just this simple invitation. You can always come back and sense the body and allow it to relax a bit more. And then on the level of the mind, getting the mind to relax is obviously a, a little bit of a trickier endeavor. But a couple of helpful things to, to frame or to reflect on One might be simply to acknowledge that the only thing to do for the next 20, 30 minutes is to relax within the simplicity of this There's no other experience to have other than this. And the this includes the totality of environmental experience, whether it's sounds or breezes or lights, images. It also includes the immediate dynamic of sensation that the body generates. Sometimes those sensations are pleasant, like little blissful tingles. And sometimes those sensations are quite nagging, dullness, pressure, achiness, numbness even. And my general recommendation for bodily discomfort as we sit is that if it's bearable, try to stay with it. But if it feels like it's causing harm, it feels hot and sharp and excruciating or anything you would call pain, just like in yin yoga, if there's sensation above a four out of 10 on a sensation scale, we encourage backing off from that. And I would encourage you here in the sitting to adjust if you need to. But just reminding the mind take a break right now. Cultivating an attitude of relaxation within this.
And now for a few moments or a few minutes, maybe, I'd like you to reflect on a quality or a few qualities that you connect with friendship. When you think of a good friend, what qualities come to mind for you? Once you connect with a quality or two, you can begin to, to train. You can drop the seed of this intention into the training now. What is it? What would it be like to meet or receive this experience with this friendly quality of Patience, care, encouragement, humor. This is the foundation beneath all specific approaches, beneath all specific techniques and suggestions. This is the the bedrock of it. Energy of friendship. Cultivating this friendship towards reality, towards the life that we experience. Now within this, or upon this foundation of friendship or friendliness, I'll give you a few simple techniques that you can try and see how they work for you. And the first technique is the technique of a perch. That's a part of your experience that you can let your attention rest on. And there are many uh, options to choose from, to to use as a perch. But the one that I I found beneficial for majority of people is, is just to feel your hands resting on your lap. 
to feel the, the simple contact of your skin and your hands in touch with your thighs or lap. And this perch is someplace you can bring your attention to as and when you'd like. You don't have to keep it there. It's more of a, a perch of rest. And the thing that lands on perches is birds. You know, if you're, when the bird of your attention flies around and explores things, at any point you can redirect and bring your attention back to the perch to take rest, to feel a sense of respite or stillness. But that's a tool in the process of developing clarity and kindness towards your experience. Now, while being open and receptive to what's going on, both in your body and mind. There are two broad modes or two broad dynamics in all meditative experience, all meditative process, regardless of what practice or tradition you might find yourself in. And those two broad modes are the mode of drifting off or wandering and the mode of waking up and being present. And everybody will experience these. This is the, the dirty secret of meditation. Nobody doesn't experience these. People have been practicing for 30 years, experience wandering, waking up, People have been practicing for 10 minutes, experience wandering and waking up. But in the beginning, it may stay alive in your practice well past the beginning, but in the beginning, there tends to be an unquestioned, implicit assumption that when your mind wanders off, you've failed. But then the implicit goal is to be as present as possible. And there will be a time where we will be cultivating greater and greater presence. But almost in a, as a form of reverse psychology, in the beginning, I think it's a very good idea to cultivate friendliness to the wandering process itself. So from the beginning, take it as a given that your mind will wander and then something, usually something in the world, i.e. a sound, i.e. a sensation, something will wake you up. 
It's like the world is prodding you to wake up. And in many ways, that waking up transition, the transition from having drifted off into a, kind of a, a, a train of thought, from being in that train of thought to waking up out of the train of thought, is the very activity of waking up. You're no longer in the dream. And that's the, the kernel of the whole path, waking up. And if every time your mind is woken up by reality, and you know you're here again, you realize you were lost, you, and now you're sitting, if every time that, that transition occurs and you judge yourself for having wandered, you self-flagellate yourself, spiritual slap on the wrist for having drifted. And you admonish yourself to try harder, resolve not to get along, you grip your thumbs more and bear down on the perch. The more you practice that way, you just re negatively reinforce the whole dynamic. Your subconscious will be less and less likely to want to wake up because every time you do there's a feeling of self-recrimination so the antidote the antidote is to plant a very firm intention to bring this quality of friendship to the transition of waking up, celebrating it. And drifting off can include drowsiness, going towards sleep, which is very common in meditation. We'll tackle that another day. But tonight, keeping it very simple, returning again and again to this foundational mindset, energy, or attitude of friendship. Greeting your body with friendship, greeting your mind with friendship, drifting off with friendship, waking up with friendship. Okay, thanks so much for listening today. If you'd like access to this talk or more talks like it or the classes that flow out of the themes discussed in this and other talks, please consider joining us. You can be a sustaining member at one of our suggested uh, support levels uh, at starting at $25 a month, or you can join as a beneficiary member, which allows us to give you, um, allows us to practice generosity and giving you access for free. So that's all available at joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. I'll see you in the next episode and I hope you have a great week.